right, so most of you know um, that my wife, Alyssa, and I, we just had our first baby girl, her name's Emma, and so she's in the back. You can take a look at her if uh, you haven't seen her yet. Um, and so she's six weeks old today, so super new to this whole parent thing. Um, but she's, she's great, but she's definitely flipped our lives upside down, and I don't think there's any way we could have prepared for, <laughs> for this. Um, but we're also from the South, Alyssa and I are originally, and so when, our, uh, when it was time for the baby to come, our parents pretty far away. I, I think they were over a thousand miles away. Uh, and so it made planning things a little bit difficult, um, trying to make sure that they were all going to be here to be able to meet the baby after she was born. Um, so the plan was originally that um, uh, her due date was September 1st. Um, but also another thing I've recently learned uh, about being a parent is that due dates don't mean anything. Plans don't really mean anything. Um, you know, I'm a planner by nature, and I've learned really quickly that as a parent, that doesn't really matter at all. You know, the plan this morning was for us to get here at 9.30, and so, you know, we got in the car at 9.45, and we headed here. Um, so plans don't really matter, due dates don't really matter, but we had this plan that she was due on September 1st, and so Alyssa's parents were going to come in right before the birth, they were going to stay afterwards as we transitioned back to our house, and then they were going to leave a couple days later, my parents were going to come in, and they were going to be with us while we were at home, we were going to have all this help at home as we, you know, transitioned into parenthood. Well, that all went out the window. You know, September 1st came and went, no sign of the baby. Um, so Alyssa's parents wound up extending their trip. Uh, and so she came a week late. Um, so my, her parents were supposed to be gone before Emma was even here. Um, so they extended their trip. My parents literally, like, they drove in from Arkansas. They got in an hour before Emma was born. Um, Alyssa wound up having a C-section, which wasn't the plan, but that meant extra time in the hospital. So that meant my parents were gone before we even left the hospital, and Alyssa's parents had to leave the day after we got home. So, so much for all that help that we were going to have at home. We were pretty much just like, all right, here you go. Have fun. <laughs> you got this. Um, but we really, you know, as it was definitely an overwhelming first couple of weeks, you know, just adjusting to that. But we were able to get through it because of you guys. Uh, we have such a good church family here at Seven Hills. So even though our physical families aren't anywhere close by, you guys have really stepped in. I just want to take a minute to thank you um, for that. You guys, you know, you brought us food, you brought us coffee, you reached out to us, sent us cards and texts, and, uh, you know, constantly praying and asking us, you know, what, if there's anything we need. And we really felt that, and that's really what got us through. And it was really awesome just to experience firsthand um, what it meant to be in biblical community, to have the support of a church family. Um, but, you know, as great as that is, while I've been preparing the sermon this week, I've been really convinced that this is really only scratching the surface of what it really should look like to be in biblical community. You know, I, we really felt that um, in those first couple of weeks, but that's not something that we should experience only in these really out-of-the-norm moments of life when we have a baby or some big life event happens. We should really experience that community in the day-to-day. And so, uh, as we look this morning, I want to um, just challenge us all to just really consider, you know, what it looks like to be in community and um, what the word has to say about it. So you can go ahead and open your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. We'll be in verses 41 through 47 this morning. Uh, I forgot to look up if somebody's using one of the Black Pew Bibles, you want to shout out what page that's on. Anybody? 9-11? Right? Is that what I heard? Okay. All right. So before we dig in, um, we're starting this Jumping into the second chapter of Acts, so I just kind of want to bring you up to speed about where we are here just to give you some context of this passage. Um, so Acts uh, picks up right after Christ's resurrection. And so Jesus revealed himself to many people 
And he's here hanging out with his disciples uh, right before he ascends to heaven. And one of the last things that he tells them is to wait in Jerusalem where they're at for God to send in the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus does ascend to heaven, and they obey, they listen to him, they wait. And then on the day of Pentecost, uh, the Holy Spirit comes down, fills these men, and then suddenly they all begin speaking in different languages. And so all these people gathered in Jerusalem from all different nations, and they're all hearing the gospel in their native tongue from these men. And so you can imagine, this draws a huge crowd together trying to figure out what in the world's going on. And then Peter, who, if you remember not that long ago, was just denying Jesus multiple times because of fear of others, uh, he gets up in front of this huge crowd and he starts proclaiming how all of Scripture points to Christ and challenges everyone there to repent and be baptized. And so that's where we're picking up today, right after Peter's delivered the sermon. So read with me in Acts 2, starting in verse 41. It says, So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all, as any had need. And day by day, attending, a temp- t- attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So in verse 21, we really see the birth of the church. You know, it goes from basically these 12 guys to suddenly over 3,000 people. And, like, that's huge. That's, like, most successful church planning ever. <laughs> like, could you imagine if our church grew 250 times its size in one day? Like, it'd be pretty amazing, but I'll be honest, the church administrator in me is, like, that gives me a little bit of panic attack thinking about what we would do with all those people. Um, but we have the church now, and so the rest of the passage gives us a glimpse into what the early church did, and it gives us a model of how we should do church today. So verse 42 lays out four things that the early church was devoted to. The apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer. And so I'm mainly going to focus on the fellowship piece this morning, but I want to point out that none of this was meant to be separated from community. You know, all these things that the early church did, they did together. You know, they didn't have a Bible app on their phones. So if they were going to be devoted to the apostles' teaching of Scripture, they actually had to come together to hear it. You know, um, breaking of bread... Here is talking about you know a meal um, that probably included communion. This took place in homes, in groups. They did it together. And while it doesn't explicitly say it in this text, you know it should be assumed that the prayers that are mentioned here, those were also done together. You know, as we go through this series on rhythms of the church, we need to realize that this Christianity thing is meant to be lived out together. We're not supposed to do it alone. So let's take a look this morning at three things that I think we can learn from the early church um, in this passage about biblical community. So number one, biblical community is devoted. Let's read verse 42 again. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayers. The early church was devoted to fellowship. You know, they were devoted to one another. So I want to spend a little bit of time thinking about that word devoted. You know, I think it's important when we read this to ask ourselves the question, you know, what am I devoted to? And not, like, what do I like to think I'm devoted to? Because I think a lot of times when we ask ourselves these questions, we have this idealized version of, like, oh, these are the things I'm devoted to, because these are the things I wish I was devoted to. But I think when we look at our lives, it tells uh, a different story. And so, um, you know, I think, you know, if we just ask ourselves a few simple questions, it's pretty easy to figure out the things that are actually important to us in our lives. You know, where does my time go? Where does my money go? Where do my thoughts go? You know, just a few simple questions quickly reveal the things that we're truly devoted to. And, you know, they reveal our priorities. And if you're anything like me, the things that wind up actually on the top of your priority list probably aren't the things that you wish they were. 
know, when you think about these questions, you think about the ways we spend our time, money, and energy. Like, do your brothers and sisters in Christ come to mind? Like, are they even on that list at all? You know, sure, we may like each other, we may see each other on a regular basis, you know, hang out every now and then, but are we really devoted to one another? You know, the way we live our lives speaks volumes about what we really care about. Um, and parents, I want to take a second just to talk to you, because I feel like I can do that now. I'm part of the club, right? I got to talk to the parents. <laughs> you know, the way we live our lives really does reflect the things that are important, and it really reflects to our children the things that we think are important. You know, do the way, do the things that we say and do, do they teach them that, you know, they should be more committed to their sports team or that they should be more committed to the church? You know, do we spend, do we encourage them to spend as much time, you know, with their brothers and sisters in Christ, you know, maybe in a youth group or whatever, as we do, you know, practicing their instruments? You know, does the things that we say and do, does it show them that money is more important or that people are more important? You know, the way that we live our lives, the subtle things that we do from day to day, they really shape our kids' priorities uh, for the better or for worse. But what does it look like to be devoted to one another? Um, I think that's the big question to ask. And I think it goes way beyond, you know, catching up during greeting time on Sunday mornings. You know, it goes beyond serving together once a month in the nursery. It even goes beyond being in a growth group and seeing each other each week. You know, these are all great things. But to be devoted to one another takes an active and regular commitment into each other's lives. And it's something that I don't know that many of us have seen modeled very well because I think it's really hard to do in our culture. You know, we live in such an individualistic culture, and if we're honest, a really prideful and selfish one oftentimes. You know, I've got to focus on me, take care of my needs, do the things that are important to me, follow my dreams, pursue my goals, be the best that I can be. And, you know, we often view our spiritual lives through the same me-focused lens, and we turn it into a very individual thing. But that's not what we see modeled in the Bible. Like, yes, Christianity is personal, but it's not individual. Our faith is meant to be lived out together. You know, when you read the Bible, you don't see that many eyes and me's, but you see a whole lot of us and we's. And as Christians, I think the individualistic side of us also tends to only focus on half the gospel. You know, we get focused on what we're rescued from, but we forget about what we're rescued to. You know, yes, we've been saved from our individual sin, leading to an eternal separation from God, but the story doesn't stop there. We're also brought into a new family. And I don't think we focus on this enough as believers. You know, and I get it. We're busy. We've got a thousand commitments. We've got full schedules. And if you're, if you're an introvert, like I am, that makes things even harder. Like, is anybody else, you know, you get invited to a social event, and the first thing you do is, like, think of some excuses why you can't go? I'm just, I don't know, that's me. I'm just being honest. And, it, you know, if that's you, pro tip, have a baby, because that's, like, the best excuse ever. Um, she gets you, I mean, she gets me out of anything. It's great. And that's my excuse this morning if the sermon's not the best, too. I'm just, I'm going to milk it for all it's worth. New baby brain. Um, but um, I'll be honest. You know, I'm an introvert. People exhaust me. Um, that's just how I'm wired. Um, you know, I need time to unwind after being around people for too long. That's just uh, who I am. Um, but that doesn't mean that I can go through life alone. That doesn't mean that I can do everything by myself. That doesn't mean that I don't need my brothers and sisters in Christ, because I do, and you do too. And so if being community isn't something that comes naturally, naturally to you, it's something you need to fight for, because we need this. You know, we need to stop making excuses for not being committed to one another. You know, we need each other. You know, if you simply come to Seven Hills, and by that I mean, you, you know, this is where you show up at 10.30 on Sundays when it's convenient, like, you're really missing out on what the church is meant to be. And church is so much more than just a place where we gather on Sundays. We should strive for something more. So there's a few things I think we see in this passage that the ch early church had that helped them to be devoted to one another that I think we need to work on today. And they're pretty fairly easy to recognize, uh, but they're really difficult to live out in the day-to-day. -day. First one is love. You know, just like any family, we need to love each other. And I don't think the early church could do any of what we see in this passage if they didn't actually care for one another. Uh, in John 13, Jesus says, by, 
By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. We as a church have to be characterized by love for one another because that's what motivates everything else. You know, if we love one another, we're going to make time for each other. If we love each other, we're going to care for each other. If we love each other, we're going to be devoted to each other. So this morning, can you truly say that you love your brothers and sisters sitting around you? Not just tolerate them, not just like them, but truly love them? Because that's the first step to experiencing true community in the church. Second thing I think we see here also seems pretty obvious, but again, it's pretty difficult um, to actually live out, and that's consistency. You know, if we're to be devoted to one another, we have to be consistently involved in each other's lives. So take a look at the text. Verse 44 says that all who believed were together and had all things in common. And if you jump down a little bit into verse 46, we read, And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. So believe it or not, actually spending time together is a pretty important piece of community. You know, we can't be in community with people that we never see. Um, but, you know, how, how do we spend time together when it seems like our culture, we're running a million miles a minute, we don't have any extra time to give? Um, I think one way is we do it just the way any family does. We spend time together just by living life day by day. You know, like, you need to go get some groceries? Great, I do too. Let's go together. You know, have somebody over for dinner. Like, even if you're just eating leftovers, like, you both have to eat. You know, your kids have, like, 20 sports games this week? Well, great. Invite, like, a single brother or sister to, you know, join you and your family in this band. You know, maybe you're a college student. You know, I think it's like midterms right now. You know, you have a ton of studying to do tonight, uh, you know, because you've been procrastinating and not doing it all weekend. Uh, you know what? There's probably somebody in your campus ministry who is in the same boat, and you guys can spend time together in the library studying. Uh, I think the temptation is to overcomplicate uh, a lot of this and make excuses about why we don't have any time to spend community, it, to spend in community. But for the most part, biblical community isn't something we really have to add on to our schedules. It's something that we can just incorporate into the things that we're already doing. So I want to challenge you to be creative in thinking about how you invite others into your life. Uh, you know, it's in these everyday moments that we can grow, grow closer to each other, that we can encourage each other, and that we can simply just be the church. And so again, like any family, I think you know, we can spend time together in the regular day-to-day, -day, everyday life. But that doesn't mean that we should neglect um, dedicated time spent together. You know, we should prioritize time that's spent, uh, carved out of our schedule together for the sole purpose of coming, growing closer to each other. Um, you know, think of it like, you know, your regular date night or your family game night, whatever you have, you know, in your family that you like, you have these set-aside times where you guys come together because life can get hectic, life can get crazy, but you set aside these times to, to come together. And we see that in the church. You know, if you look in verse 46, you see that there were two places the believers would gather on a regular basis. It was the temple and at home. And that's the model we try to follow here at Seven Hills with our regular Sunday service and in our growth groups. You know, we gather collectively as a whole on Sunday mornings, and we also get into smaller groups throughout the week. And notice it says attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. It doesn't say or. Uh, so I think another temptation is to think of growth groups as just like a little bonus. Like that's like Seven Hills Plus, so if you need a little something extra. But that's not what we see here. That's, um, that's a critical part of our church. Like we need to meet corporately and in small groups. Uh, they each play a role in the church. And, you know, that means that we should really have just as many people plugged into, uh, into our growth groups as we have in a service on Sunday morning. And we're not anywhere close to that, guys. And so if you're not in a growth group this morning, I want to challenge you to get in one. This is such a great place to start diving deeper into biblical community. You know, these groups um, help us move from just, like, sharing the pew with one another to actually sharing life together. 
So if you look at the back of your bulletin, actually, like if you're not in a growth group, the back of your bulletin at the bottom, it tells you, you know, where you can find more information, how you can join a growth group. And so I really want to challenge you, if you're not in one, to, to look at that this morning. And then the third thing I think we see that help the church be devoted to one another is vulnerability. And again, another thing that's super hard to actually practice. Um, we'll dive more into verse 45 in a minute, but it says that they took care of each other's needs. And if we're going to take care of each other's needs in the church, we actually have to know what those are. Um, that's not something that we're very good at, uh, letting people know what our needs are. You know, vulnerability is another really countercultural thing. You know, we have so much cultural pressure to pretend like we have it all together, to put on this mask, this facade, like, I've got this, I can handle it, I, you know, I, I'm good. We're often, you know, too proud to admit when we have struggles, when we need something. Um, but pride really isn't the only thing that contributes to this. There's also the flip side of apathy. You know, I think we tend to be really apathetic to the needs of others. Um, you ever ask someone how they're doing and they surprise you and actually tell you how they're doing and they're not doing great and they tell you, like, it's really awkward. You're like, well, man, it's not how this works. I say, how are you? You say, I'm good, fine. How are you? I'm good. You move on. Like, I don't actually want to know how you are. But that's not how the church should be. We should actually want to know how each other are. And if we're um, going to be the church that we're called to be, we have to be willing to be vulnerable with each other. We have to be willing to care enough to actually step into each other's lives and address each other's needs. And this is by no means easy. You know, it's scary being vulnerable, and it's scary stepping into other people's messes. But life's messy, and we need to be like, to join each other in those messes. You know, whether it's financial struggles, or family problems, or sin issues, we need to be able to turn to our brothers and sisters for help. And as members of the body of Christ, we should never face these things alone. This is the whole reason the church exists. So number two uh, thing we see about biblical community is that it's generous and hospitable. So verse 45, read with me, says that they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all, as any had need. So at first glance, that may sound a little cultish, maybe like socialism or something, but this isn't government-mandated socialism. This is Christ-centered generosity. At church, we're called to be a family, and families take care of each other. And this was something the early church figured out right away. If there was a brother or sister that had a need, the church was right there to take care of that need. And the kind of generosity that we see here isn't just giving out of excess or convenience. They were literally selling their stuff to help each other out. You know, they sacrificed for each other. And we also see that this isn't just a few, like, wealthy or well-established people. This was something that all the church was doing. Everyone was being generous. And, you know, for me, this is really challenging, I'll be honest. As somebody in my 20s, I just had a baby, working on paying off student loans, trying to save for a down payment on a house. Like, I often do not feel like I have the means to be generous. You know, I'll be generous later when, you know, I'm out of debt, when I've got, like, more steady income, when you know, you're more established. Like, it'll be way easier for me to be generous then. So, like, that's when I'll be generous. And, you know, maybe you're in that same boat this morning. The thing is, true generosity isn't just giving because it's easy. And generosity is putting the needs of, other, of others above our own comforts, conveniences, and financial goals. And this is going to look different for all of us. You know, depending on where you are in life, what generosity means for you is going to look different than what it means for somebody else. You know, for some of you, maybe you've got an extra car and a brother or sister, you know, just totaled theirs and there's no way they can afford a new one. So maybe for you, generosity is like a, something huge, like giving somebody a car. You know, for others of you, maybe this is simply like skipping a Dunkin' run once a week so that you have a little bit of extra money in your budget to support your friend who's serving overseas. Um, and while this passage is specifically referring to financial generosity, we can all be generous with our other resources like our time and talents. And again, this radical idea of generosity is something that's really countercultural. You know, selling your stuff to help other people isn't super normal in our society. It stands out. Like, you sometimes see stories like this on, like, daytime talk shows um, because, like, it's not normal. People, like, step back and wonder about these things. 
Um, but just because it's not normal to the world around us doesn't mean it shouldn't be normal for us. This kind of generosity should be commonplace in the church. Um, you know, generosity may not naturally come to, you, come to you naturally, but the gospel should make us into a generous people. So one biblical commentator says this, the church gives freely, voluntarily, sacrificially, and generously to the work of God's kingdom because Jesus has changed their hearts and they want to invest in what he's doing in the world. This church knew their Savior gave them the pattern and the power for generosity. The best and most sustainable model for generous giving is a deep understanding and appreciation of grace. So church, let's remember the amazing generosity that we've been shown through Christ, and let's show that to others. Along with the generosity, we also see here that the church is hospitable. So I'm not going to camp out here super long, but I want to see that hospitality and generosity went hand in hand in the early church. Verse 46 says, And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. So they did this in their homes. You know, some of us are better at this than others, but I think hospitality as a whole is a, another way that the church has a lot of room to grow. You know, our homes tend to be where life happens, and if we're going to be working towards doing life together, we need to be in each other's homes. Um, and, you know, I think it's really easy to come up with a million excuses why we don't want to do that. Um, you know, I'm too busy, my house is a mess, it's too small, there's nowhere to park, it's too far away, on and on and on. Like, we have reasons. There's, and there's a lot of, you know, what seem seemingly valid reasons that, you know, we keep our front door closed. Uh, but let me challenge you this morning to invite others into your home. You know, don't worry if the kids' toys are out. Don't worry if you don't have a fancy meal prepared. But we need to be involved in each other's lives. And the home is where that can really happen. You know, there's something really special about simply having a meal or sharing a cup of coffee in someone's home. You know, it's an intimate environment. We can really let our walls down. We can really um, just dive deep into conversation. You know, it encourages transparency. It provides an opportunity for us just to slow down, to put down our phones, and really just engage with one another. And, you know, from a worldly perspective, like, there's so many studies that show, you know, that families should eat together. You know, family meals are so good for the health of a family, for them to be able to connect with each other. But church, we're a family. Like, these things apply to us, too. We need to be spending time together around the table and in each other's homes. The final thing about biblical community I think we see in this text is that it's contagious. Read with me in verse 47. Praising God and having favor with all the people, the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. You know, while the church experienced great intimacy with one another, they weren't a clique. You know, they invited others into the family. You know, the text says, the Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. Our family is one that should be constantly growing. We shouldn't just be satisfied with the people that we have now. And as we live life in community, we need to be inviting others to come into that community, to get a little taste of what it means to be part of the family of God. You know, we need to introduce our lost friends to our Christian friends so that we can be sharing the gospel with them together. And true biblical community is attractive to the watching world. You know, I've said multiple times that what we see happening in this text is countercultural. This is not the norm. But people tend to notice when you do things out of the norm. And if we're really living a community the way that the Bible tells us to, people are going to pay attention. It's going to be noticed. And odds are they're going to want to be a part of it too. You know, a recent study found that 50% of Americans feel lonely some or all the time. Same study said that 40% of people said their relationships lack companionship, aren't meaningful, and leave them feeling isolated from others. You know, so despite being like more connected than we've ever been through our phones, through social media, like we're a really lonely people. Um, and while this may, you know, this study is really focused on Americans in general, like sadly, you probably find similar statistics within the church. But I think it's because we're not doing community the way that we should be. You know, the church has so much to offer a broken and isolated world. 
And one of the greatest blessings that God gives his people is each other. And we so often neglect that gift. So let's fight to be different in the world. Let's create an environment where we truly feel and act like a family. Let's start to be the church that people look at from the outside and say, I want that. I need that in my life. So as I finish up this morning, I want to challenge each of us to take at least one step um, in the pursuit, uh, one step forward in the pursuit of true biblical community. And that's regardless of where you are right now. You know, maybe you're here this morning and you're just checking this whole Christianity thing out. You know, I, my hope is that you've seen, you have some Christian friends and you've seen them live out this community that I've talked about this morning. And it's made you want to learn more. And so my challenge to you this morning to join the family. Yes, it's messy. Yes, we don't have it together. Um, but I would invite you to experience the grace of God, to surrender your life to Christ and experience this community for yourself. You know, maybe others of you, you've been attending Seven Hills pretty regularly. Um, you haven't really gone deeper than that. You've just kind of been attending on Sunday mornings now and then, or maybe even on a regular basis. Um, and my challenge to you this morning is to commit. Like, stop dating Seven Hills, put a ring on it. Like, commit to, to the church. Uh, you know, I don't know, we're in a weird place right now. We don't have a lead pastor. But guess what? The pastor isn't the head of the church. Christ is, and he hasn't gone anywhere. So my challenge to you this morning is to commit to the church. Um, and we, you know, we have this Discover class coming up. Missy announced it earlier next month. Like, that's the first step into getting uh, more involved here and committing to the church and becoming a church member. So I want to encourage you, uh, November 17th, I believe it is, like, write that on your calendar. Make a, make a choice to come to that. Uh, and if you're here today and you're not in a growth group, I've already said, get in one. This is important. Um, these are things that we, we need as a church. This is a vital part of what we do. And if you are in a growth group, don't stop there. Don't be like, check, I've got biblical community down. Like this, you know, our groups are designed to cultivate community, but they're really just a launching point. Like true biblical community is not something you can program into an hour or two a week. There's so many more steps we can take from that. So wherever you are today, um, take that next step in getting involved in each other's lives. You know, let's not let church just be something that we go to once a week. Let's let it be something that we are each and every day. Will you pray with us? God, Lord, I just um, thank you for your church. Lord, thank you that you have blessed us with one another. Lord, pray that you would forgive us for um, often neglecting that gift, for um, not seeing the church as a true blessing that it is. God, I pray that you would... Um, Help us each to take whatever next step that is to um, just pursue each other, Lord, as we pursue you. Lord, we, we can't do this alone. We need each other, and that's why you've given us each other. And that's why you've given us the church, God. So I pray that you would help us to be uh, engaged in each other's lives, to carve out time to be with one another, to be vulnerable, to love each other, God, and just to be consistently involved in each other's lives, Lord. I pray, God, that... You would just uh, be with us, Lord, as we um, we do this church thing together. Lord, help us to to follow you as we do that, Lord. I pray that you would be with us uh, the rest of the service, Lord, as we uh, respond in worship to you. Jesus' name, pray. Amen.